Good evening and welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to our 277th podcast. Wow, we're really cranking along. I've been doing two a week recently, and um, now we're going to do some pre-records and uh, post them over the summer because I'm going to be traveling and working on a book. And uh, I'm excited because I'm doing Guys Guys Radio like every every other day now because uh, I got to get uh, caught up and uh, get ahead of, ahead of things. But um, tonight we have a great show. It is Wednesday, our usual day for our podcast, uh, April 25th. And our special guest is Charles Salzberg, a New York City author, and he's a specialist in the crime genre, and he's been called an existential crime author. And he has a new book called Second Story Man, and it's really cool. I just went through it over the past week. And uh, you, the story is told via the perspective of the three different characters, chapter by chapter. It's kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly in a way, uh, but uh, in a crime story, uh, modern crime story. It's a fantastic book. So we're going to get Charles out here in a few moments. So let's start out by talking about what's going on. Well, Guys, Guys Radio, of course, is the place where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Well, we like that. And um, we've been doing this for a while now, and we're getting more and more, a bigger audience. We're getting more popular, and we're having a lot of fun with it. So I'm thrilled to have uh, somebody like Charles on here. He's been with me since the beginning. He's uh, graced me as being an early guest uh, in the early days of Guys Guys Radio, and he's a guest now. So uh, bigger and better things for everybody because Charles's career as an author has really taken off. He's a Seamus Award winner, and uh, he's really done fantastic over the last decade or so. So uh, we welcome Charles, and he's been a writer his whole life. He's a writer's writer. And he, the thing I really like about him is he's a great guy and he's helped so many people, so many writers, particularly in New York, through the New York Writers Workshop, including myself. He's always available for advice. He's always uh, mindful and pays attention and he'll go out of his way to help you any way he can. And uh, he's just a great, great dude. And he's a baseball fan, too. So even though he's a Mets fan, I still love him. So, okay. Let's talk about what's going on here. Well, here we are in New York City. We had a rainy day today, but it's supposed to get it's supposed to get nicer. And um, it's springtime, and the trees, uh, the buds are on the trees, and all of that. And speaking of baseball, I took my little guy. I have a four-year-old. He's going to turn five in about two weeks to t-ball, and uh, he's just learning to swing. So I figured, you know what? I better get him a, a tee for home and a bat. So we went out to Models today and picked up a bat. And I got a tee, and uh, we're going to do a little practice and got some balls. We'll do some drills. And, uh, you know, baseball, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, it's not an easy game to learn. And it's very zen, where you, the more you learn about it, the more interesting it gets. But when you're four or five years old, uh, you, you know, the ball is hit. The kids just run around and chase the ball. You, you can do that for soccer. But when you're doing baseball, it's a whole different ball game, if you will. So uh, let's see what happens with that. Here in New York, we've got the Mets are overachieving. I think some might agree, even the Mets fans. And even that's without uh, the great Matt Harvey uh, really living up to his uh, potential. Now, I guess his injury, since he's come back from the Tommy John or whatever surgery he had, he just hasn't really come back. And, uh, you know, it seems like a history of the Mets. They always build their team through pitching and then their pitchers get hurt. So we'll see if they, but they are usually loaded. So they've got some offense this year and um, let's see if they, they can keep it going. Yankees on the other hand, 
got a lot of new players. I, to me, they are just going to be explosive uh, when the weather gets warmer. I, they had a slow start, and they got a lot of guys hurt. And I really think it's because of uh, the, the cold weather, because they traveled into from one cl- cold climate to another. They missed some games through the cold. It was bitter cold the last couple of weeks. And now as it started to warm up even a little bit, the, their hitters are starting to really crank. And I, uh, I feel sorry for the other teams uh, in the American League because the Yankees are going to put some runs on the board and uh, hopefully their pitching can hold up. They don't have a lot of depth in their starting pitching, but they have a very good bullpen. And um, I think they need one more starter and that could put them uh, in a very good place. The Red Sox are off to a great start. Houston's an excellent team. The angels are back now. Um, So we've got the American league is loaded. So we'll see what happens. It should be a fun season elsewhere in kind of guys, guys world, if you will on uh, radio, Mike Francesa, is coming back to WFAN. He uh, went on his retirement tour and he was like all done with radio. And now he's come as some would say, crawling back to WFAN and they rehired him at a discount. Um, I guess he couldn't get the deal he wanted elsewhere. And he's kind of elbowing the people who were the three people, the three person team that replaced him. He's kind of elbowing them out of the way. And um, they haven't had the ratings and I don't think their ratings are going to get better. And uh, so, but there's been some acrimony since um, Francesa left and I thought he was like done. Okay. Will you leave, you know, go do something else. Don't come right back to FAN. He does have a loyal fan base and I like listening to him more than listening to these other people. I don't listen to them. I gave him a try, but I didn't feel the chemistry was there and it was just too many, too many voices. And with Francesa, you kind of know what you're going to get. I don't agree with a lot of his opinions and he's very arrogant and obnoxious at times, but He's an institution, and um, he kind of built the whole sports talk radio thing in New York, him and uh, Mad Dog Russo. So we'll see what happens when he comes back, because I think uh, he's put himself in a position that if he doesn't succeed, he will have tainted, if you will, his legacy. So we'll see what happens with that elsewhere. I don't even want to get into the whole thing with Trump and everything. Him and uh, Macron were uh, meeting this week. But, you know, the thing with Trump where he, he, you know, I don't know where he's going to end up with this Paris climate agreement because every other country in the world is basically in it. And I don't know if uh, uh, the French president has convinced him to reconsider that. But you have with uh, Mr. Like Art of the Deal, he wants to pull out of the Iran deal, but then he wants to make a deal with North Korea. And if you're in North Korea, you're saying, well, this guy, he, you know, I can't trust America because this guy, they make a deal, a 10 year deal, and then they change their mind after a year. And it's the same thing with NAFTA. Now he wants to get out of NAFTA. He didn't want to go into the uh, TPP and he has his reasons and we have to respect some of the thinking there. But the thing that our president doesn't quite understand, and maybe this is because he's been in the private sector and he hasn't even worked at a public company, much less the government, is that everything's connected. You deal one bad deal in one area, it can affect how you're perceived in another area. And I think the transparency and the honesty issues are are really going to keep bubbling to the top. And when people from your own party uh, don't trust you, uh, over time, it's going to just take some of the air out of the, out of the balloon, if you will. So, uh, we'll see what happens with that. Fingers crossed there. Hopefully, uh, you know, we want America to succeed. Um, we don't want America to be fleeced. 
So it's so we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Fleetwood Mac is getting back together, but Lindsey Buckingham, one of the members where the when Fleetwood Mac really took off when they did Rumors and uh, the other Fleetwood Mac album, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Maybe it was just called Fleetwood Mac. Um, that uh, he's out. He quit. He didn't want to go on tour. So they actually got the guitar player. They replaced him with two guys. Mike Campbell, who was Tom Petty's uh, lead guitar player, and this guy Neil Finn is going to do vocals. And he was the vocalist for Split Ends and Crowded House. So they've got two kind of old pros in there. And uh, so that should be a really big tour. It's kind of interesting if you're into, into Fleetwood Mac. And they did a lot of great songs. You know, it's interesting. I was watching the uh, Beatles movie uh, over the weekend, my wife and I, um, the Beatles touring years. And if you haven't seen it, uh, Ron Howard uh, directed it. They did a fantastic job pulling this together. And I think with a lot of us, even the boomers don't remember. And, and some of the kids who really, you know, they didn't live through what the whole Beatlemania thing. It was explosive. Um, you know, Elvis broke down the door, but the Beatles came through and it was a phenomena that was global and never, uh, never re, uh, Never redone again. Uh, nobody's done it. And uh, I'm a huge Stones fan and uh, they're out there ready to go on another tour in the, the, in the UK. Uh, but the Beatles, they had that phenomena for about eight years where that's untouched and uh, it, they just struck an emotional nerve with their audience. It's the same thing when you're doing writing or any type of art. If you hit that emotional nerve, you know, it can be explosive. And with the Beatles, it was like, wow, it wasn't even how good they, they had great songs, of course. And their performances live were you couldn't even hear them because there was so much screaming. But they tapped into uh, the heart of the culture at a specific time frame and it'll never it's going to go untouched. It won't be replicated. So if you haven't checked out the movie, see that and then see Crossfire Hurricane, which uh, covers uh, the Stones from. 1962 up to like 1980 where they became this kind of legacy band that they are now. And uh, you'll see uh, parallel stories that are very different, but equally as interesting. And now, you know, when you see, you know, we're watching uh, Netflix or Amazon or whatever, there's all of these one-offs about all the different bands. There was history of the Eagles. There was something recently on Eric Clapton. There's the Elvis thing that I think, I'm not sure if it's HBO or Showtime, but it's a two-part thing on Elvis, which is very good because it gives you a lot of historical context as to what Elvis was all about and why he's so significant and important. But uh, if you, if I, if I would say if you're going to see, let's say, three, see the one on Elvis, see the one on the Beatles, see the one on the Stones, and um, you'll get a really good picture as to why these three musical acts are so much a part of the fabric of our of our culture, particularly if you're a boomer, boomer culture. So, and why there's not bands with the same type of legacies uh, going forward. Uh, There's just not the staying power and the, the record recording industry marketplace is a lot different in terms of how you sell music versus how it was done 50 years ago. So anyhow, good stuff there. Um, What I like to do is uh, I like to do a guy's guide the week once a week. So I'm going to do it tonight. And um, our guy's guy of the week, you know, being a guy's guy is all about casual confidence, unassuming strength, emotional intelligence, timeless style, seductive integrity, fun. But in this case, the guy's guy of the week is somebody who showed um, definitely unassuming strength and um, and, and uh, intestinal fortitude. And that is the guy, James Shaw Jr., who uh, the Waffle House hero. He's getting really 
he hasn't gotten any recognition by the president for some reason. Uh, and he took down uh, that shooter. And uh, he has a four-year-old daughter. He put his, himself on the line. He didn't use a gun. And uh, he kind of wrestled that gun away, the AK-15 or what, AR-15 or whatever, away from this guy and uh, saved a lot of lives. And uh, he's a real-life a real life hero. And uh, he is our guy's guy of the week. And he deserves recognized nationally uh, for uh, this type of thing. We're stepping forward where so many people step away and let terrible things happen. He's stepping forward. The anti guys guy of the week, if you will, I'm just going to throw this in. It's like any New Yorker uh, has now witnessed, you know, there's more and more dogs on the subway and, you know, dogs really don't belong on the subway. And if they're on the subway, they need to be in some type of a compartment, if you will, or a bag or whatever. And you have to keep it kind of at your feet. Well, somebody had a pit bull on the subway. And the pit bull snapped out and start bit somebody in the leg and a woman in the foot and wouldn't let go. And they had the whole car wrestling with the dog and everything. And it's just like, you know what? Don't bring your pit bull onto the subway. I know pit bulls can be very loving pets, but they also can turn. And uh, if they, maybe if they don't get the right amount of love or whatever, and you don't want to put pit bull has strong jaws. When they turn, they turn. And it's really hard to uh, get them out of the, the mood they're in, if you will. So, uh, that's our anti-guys guy of the week is anybody who brings uh, uh, animals onto the subway. It's really, you know what, if, if you can avoid it, avoid it. If you're going to, put, it in, put the animal in some type of a compartment, as is uh, the, 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 the rule of the law. So anyhow, so we're going to take a very, very, very short break, and then we're going to bring our special guest, Charles Salzberg. And, of course, the name of the show is... You're listening to the Guys Guy Radio. Okay, we're back. Welcome back to Guys Guys Radio. Our special guest is Charles Salzberg. Let me tell you a little bit about Charles. Um, Let me pull out his bio here. He's a novelist, a journalist, and acclaimed writing instructor at New York Writers Workshop. Uh, He's the author of the Henry Swan Detective Series, including Swan's Last Song, which is nominated nominated for a Seamus Award for Best First P.I. Novel. And, of course, Devil in the Hole, which is probably his biggest book, which was named one of the best crime novels of 2013 by Suspense Magazine. He's taught writing at Sarah Lawrence, Hunter College, Writer's Voice, New York Writer's Workshop, where he's a founding member. They've been around for 17 years. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, L.A. Times, Esquire, New York Magazine, and GQ. He lives in New York City. You can find him at Central Park playing softball uh, during the week and on the weekend. And uh, thanks so much, Charles, for being on the show. Good evening, Charles. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, Robert. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your new book, Second Story Man. Um, I read some of the questions, and I came up with some of my own because I want to know why – you are a existential crime novelist, and <clears throat> what is existential about your work? Well, that's a good question. I didn't call myself that, although a friend of mine said that the Swan's Last Song, which was the first one, was an existential um, detective novel, and that's because in the original version of that, Swan follows all the clues and doesn't solve the crime. Um, I think what, what um, Hank Libby Ryan meant by that is that I'm much more... Um, interested in character and what motivates people, um, which is a sort of a loose definition of existential. It's about what exists. And so um, 
it's not that the crime is incidental, but the crime comes out of the, the character of the criminal and the, uh, you know, those people chasing after the criminal. In this case, it's a retired, uh, newly retired Connecticut state investigator and a, um, a Cuban-American Miami police detective who's been suspended from uh, mm-hmm. the job. And it's, it's told from the three perspectives, and it's really about this uh, cat-and-mouse uh, pursuit of this guy who is a master burglar, and he is um, uh, he's arrogant. He believes he's the best ever. And eventually, he, he, it's, the, it's about the relationship between these three men. Uh, exactly. And it's really nice cause, because it's interesting because at the beginning of the book, the chapters are long as you do kind of some of the setup and get to the inciting incident, et cetera. And then you get towards the end, the chapters get shorter and, and uh, sharper. And I don't mean the opening chapters aren't sharp, but they've been like, like it's very clear where this one and this guy's perspective and this guy and the action gets faster and faster and faster, uh, rolling towards the climax and uh, just very well done. Um, I'm wondering did you go into the uh, crafting of the book with that in mind? Or did you just say like, you know what? It's uh, there's three different guys here. Why don't I just literally uh, break it down three ways and just be very uh, upfront about that. Here's one perspective. Here is uh, Hoyt. Here is Manny. And here is uh, um, Charlie. Hoyt. Hoyt, yeah. Uh, you know, the truth is, and it's just the way I, I write, nothing is planned with me. Um, everything is, is sort of organic. So once I had the three characters and I had an idea of where the story was going, um, I, it just took off. And, and actually it's very perceptive for you to, to notice the chapters get shorter as it moves along because what happens, like anything else, think of a, a rock rolling down a hill. At mm-hmm. first it's, but as it gets further down the hill, it picks up speed. And um, I like to read books like that. And I think it was just natural. That wasn't really planned. But the book just, um, you know, unreeled like a, like a movie much quicker as I, as I moved on. And you're right also in the sense that the first chapters, you have to set up the character and motivation and a little history mm-hmm. about the characters. So, um, you know, I hadn't thought of that before until you just mentioned it, that it, that it is true. That is the way it's structured. Uh, the other thing is I never knew when I ended one chapter who was going to be the next chapter. In other words, uh, okay. I would end oh, cool. at point, and I didn't necessarily know that it was either going to be Charlie or um, Manny who was going to be the next chapter. So it, it just was very organic. It's, it's just a, it's a feel that writers have, I think. Uh, and some writers do plan out a plot, but I, I'm just not one of them. It must have been fun writing this book because you, you didn't have to get bogged down. And as the pace picked up, you can like, okay, now switch characters, switch characters, switch characters. And it's very, it keeps it very fresh. Was it fun writing this one versus some of your other books? Not that they're yeah. not fun, but I mean, I was thinking the process with this one might've been a lot of fun. It was. And, and part of the reason is because um, if you're getting to know characters and as I was writing, the three characters. Now, one of them, two of them came from uh, Devil in the Hole. Uh, Charlie Floyd was a, a main right. character in Devil in the Hole, and Manny was very tiny. He's part of one small chapter in the book. But I thought, well, these two, what if I teamed them together? What would happen? And uh, so once I did that, it was um, I was learning things as I was writing. 
And Hoyt became a very, very um, interesting and fun character to write for me because he's he's so evil and he's so diabolical that he's so much different from the way I am that it allowed me to be a different person um, while I was writing him. So I'm glad that the fun part comes through because it really was, I'd say of all the books I've written, it was the most fun to write. Um, also to, to research a little bit because I had to research about burglars. Um, and so uh, that part was fun too. But I'm glad it comes through to someone, you know, because we haven't spoken about this before, but if right. you see that, uh, I think that if, if the reader's having fun, I think it's a good chance the writer probably had some fun writing it too. Now, did you, um, do you like the uh, Hoyt? Did I, did I, Am I do like you like him? him? Yeah. Oh, do I like him? You know, I don't like him. I don't I mean, like him, baby, right? him, but I find him compelling. Um, and so uh, there's nothing really likable about him. And, and here's an, uh, another interesting thing that I haven't really mentioned before, and that was that when I first started this, I pictured Hoyt as a redeemable character. I, I was going to make him likable, like a likable thief, a, a likable burglar. And as I wrote, I just realized that that wasn't going to work. You know, he's not likable. And if he's going to be arrogant and if he's going to uh, dare the world to catch him, he's not going to be a likable person, but he can still be a compelling person. And that's what I wanted to, you know, that's what I hope that readers get out of it is that he's not likable, but yet he's compelling. And in some weird way, some people actually root for him to, to win. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's the way it, it, it unfolded for me. Let's, I wouldn't uh, want to. I wouldn't want to know this guy. I wouldn't want to hang out with this okay. guy. Okay, right. He's a little slippery. Well, let's set the table for the for our listeners. So it's really about this. This Hoyt is a old fashioned thief in that he steals jewelry and he steals silverware and all kinds of stuff. And um, Manny and. Uh, Charlie are two detectives, one's from Connecticut, one's from uh, kind of a, a Cuban from uh, Florida, and um, they team up to because uh, this guy is very arrogant and he thinks he's the best. And these two guys get together to go after him. So you've got kind of this the three characters. Could you just elaborate a little bit on the plot so people get it better than what I just articulated? Sure. Um, the burglar, uh, Francis Hoyt is actually modeled after two real-life burglars. One was called the Silver Thief, and he only stole high-end silver and was never really caught in the act. And the other was a fellow by the, uh, who was known as the Dinnertime Bandit. He would only hit houses during dinnertime when he knew people were home, which meant that the jewelry was home. So, um, it, and he, would, he was a second-story man. He would climb up to the second story, and people are having dinner downstairs, and he would rob the place while they were there. And so I, I actually patterned Hoyt after those two. Um, in any case, the, the book starts um, in Florida because uh, what, what Hoyt does is in the winter, he goes down south. Why? Because that's where the money is. That's where the rich people go, and that's where he's going to find the, the best pickings. And then as, as summer, spring and summer approaches, he goes north. And so the book opens with him just getting ready to leave Florida, heading up north. And at about the same time, uh, Charlie 
uh, Floyd, who has recently retired and looking for something to do, he gets a call from Manny Perez, and Manny has been chasing uh, Hoyt for quite a while. He's obsessed with finding him, and actually he's been suspended from his job because of Hoyt, something he did, which I won't give away. Um, and so Floyd gets a call from Manny, who wants to come up and team up with Floyd to try to catch um, the Hoyt in the act. And so, um, you know, Floyd, who has nothing better to do, says yes, and Manny flies up there, and the two team up to try to catch, catch uh, Hoyt. And mm-hmm. um, Hoyt, about, about a third or halfway through the book, finds out that these, these two guys are after him, and he takes it as a challenge and starts to taunt the two guys, daring them to, to, to catch him. And so that's pretty much what the, you know, someone, I never thought of this while I was writing it, but two different reviews have compared it to the movie Heat, which was with Pacino right. mm-hmm. and De Niro, which was also kind of a cat and mouse, you know, the good, the good and the bad. And I realize that they're probably right. It is that kind of thing where the two, you know, it's the, there are two cats and one mouse, but at certain times, the, the mouse becomes the cat. And so right. um, that's the way the book is structured. Now, um, as a subplot, you have uh, the dynamic between the two detectives. Could right. you uh, talk to us about um, how you structure that and the, your intention there? Sure. Um, Charlie Floyd, who's the Connecticut investigator, is almost the flip side of, um, of Hoyt. He's arrogant. He breaks the rule. Uh, he's obsessed. You know, feels that he's the best. Uh, and Manny, who came to this country in his teenage years, is very straight-laced. Follows the rules. Loves America. And it's why he became a cop. Is he wanted to give back. And so he and he and uh, Floyd are very different. Uh, they want the same end, but they're. Um, their personalities are different, and their code of ethics are different. And so I thought it would be interesting to put those two together, trying to find someone who is, um, has no ethics and has no morals. And so they are very different, um, uh, the, the two who are chasing after him. And they kind of complement each other, and they do get along. They don't always agree on you know, how, to, how to go forward, but they really get to... Um, to like each other and to respect each other as investigators. How do you feel about um, justice and uh, redemption? And uh, it looks like the, the ending, not to give anything away, is a, there's a little bit of an opening there. So we, we yeah. could see these three guys getting together again, maybe. Um, what, what's your thoughts about, um, did you, when you were crafting this, did you, did you have an ending in mind? And did you want like the good guys to win or does it matter or what, what was your kind of process there? Well, it's kind of like the process in all my books. I never know what the ending is. And, and yet when I get to the end, it's almost like it was dictated, like it had to be that. And there is a surprise ending of this book, but it wasn't planned in the sense of, oh, if I end it this way, I can mm-hmm. have a seat right. or I can do this. But to be very honest with you, even before I got to the end, I thought, you know, these are three. Originally, I thought that, yeah, originally I thought that, okay, at the end of this book, 
Manny and Charlie are going to team up and become detectives together, open a detective agency or something. But as I got closer to the end of the book, I thought, you know, it might be more interesting to write a sequel from the point of view of uh, Francis Hoyt. So to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do next, uh, which characters mm-hmm. I'm going to because I'm trying desperately to finish The Fifth Swan. So um, I, I can't really think about that. But those things sort of percolate in the back of your mind as you're... And, um, and, and as I got to the end, I thought, you know, I like these characters. I'd like to visit them again. I'm just not sure how. Got it. Um, what's your feeling as a writer about um, the placement of backstory? Uh, it, that's a really interesting question because... Every character has to have a backstory in order to be um, to be real and not a stereotype. And I think sometimes it's really important for the reader to know the backstory, and other times it's more important for the writer to know the backstory. And you may not even use it in in the book. In other words, you may not tell a lot of the backstory that you know as the writer. And the reason is you don't want to bog down the um, the reader, but you have to know it because everyone's actions comes, uh, their motivation comes from the past. It comes from right. where they are. So it depends on the book. I mean, for instance, I give a lot more backstory in the book to Francis Hoyt than I do to um, Charlie Floyd, and I give more backstory for um, Manny Perez than I do for, for Charlie Floyd, but not as much as uh, I do for Hoyt. So um, I think each each writer does it differently, but every character should have a backstory, even if you don't use it in the book, because if not, I think that you wind up writing uh, one-dimensional with characters if you don't know who mm-hmm. they are. Now, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, kind of knowing what's going on with your characters, you also... Uh, have some locales that you like, uh, obviously New York and you're a New Yorker and, uh, Florida, uh, you've included Florida in some of your books. How, how do you, uh, do you gravitate towards certain locations and locales where you feel comfortable with, or do you like to just open up Google sometime and say, Hey, what's it like in Pasadena? You know, the, if I lived in Pasadena, where, where would I go for, you know, lunch type of thing? Or do you stick with what you know? Um, both. For instance, in the first book of novel I ever wrote, Swan's Last Song takes place in New York, California, mm-hmm. LA, Mexico, and Berlin. When I wrote that book, I'd never been to L.A., and I'd never been to that part of Mexico, and I'd never been wow. to Berlin. But wow, a friend well, of mine book, yeah, a friend of mine read the book, and he said to me, a best friend, he said, when did you go to L.A.? And I said, never. And he said, well, how did you catch it so well? Because he'd been there many times. And it's it's easy you know you could you do research you you i got a map i talked to people who've been there in this book um i have been to miami beach and i have been to new york because i'm a new yorker and i have been to connecticut and it takes place there too and new jersey but part of the book takes place in charleston and i've never been to charleston and so um it'll be interesting to see if people can pick that up what i did was i went to to Google, as you mentioned, and I read about it, and I, I saw a news story about Charleston, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a good location, because what happens is that, as I said, when the book opens, um, Hoyt is in Florida, and he's heading north, 
but he doesn't fly. But then there would be a record of his travel. He doesn't he doesn't take a, a a train. He doesn't rent a car. He goes in the way that is most anonymous, and that's by bus. And what he does is he takes a bus up the Atlantic coast, and occasionally he gets off the bus just because he gets tired of, of you know riding. And in this case, I looked at a map, and I thought, okay, he's going to get off in Charleston for a night. And he gets off in Charleston, and he does something that I don't want to give away, uh, something kind of odd for someone who's one night in, in Charleston. So to answer your question, I use both. And in many ways, I'm better writing about places I haven't been, places I have been. Um, because the places I have been, I take for granted, and I, I'm, I'm not as good about describing them as places I haven't been. You know, it's interesting. When I'm uh, thinking about my next thing, I, I actually cut articles out constantly and throw them in these folders, and then the stuff gets old, and, okay, those have to go out and get new ones. And constantly, even at, because, you know, like, we're in New York, and New York changes so much from year to year that, uh, you know, every time anyone goes to a different part of town, you're going to see a different look. It's just, you know, now we've got Hudson. If anybody's been to Hudson Yards, who's listening, it's like, wow, this is like a new New York within New York City. It's like a new city in the city. It's just New York is an amazing place that way where you can never keep up with it. So uh, how do you keep up with New York? That's a good question because I live in an area now, Upper West Side near the river, which was the uh, the rail yards. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so when I was growing up and I grew up in New York, the only thing over here were was rail, rail yards and parking lots, and now it's all these buildings right, right there in, in different parts. And when I was growing up, you didn't dare go to the East Village. It was Alphabet City. Right. It was dangerous. Yep. Now it's all yuppified, and you can't even afford apartments over there. So you're absolutely right. New York is changing. It's organic. It changes all the time. And, um, you know, it, it, it is writing. It's, it's really a series of neighborhoods, New York. Uh, and each one is distinctive. I mean, so, for instance, um, Hell's Kitchen used to be, you know, that's how it got its name. Now it's a trendy yep. place. So uh, you have to keep up with it as, as a writer or, or, or doing anything is uh, what the changes are in New York. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because just as a person or a writer, you, you you only have so much time. You can't you can't you cannot. I defy anybody to keep up with New York. It's just it's it's impossible. But it's fun to try. It's right. it's it's a fascinating place. Um, let me Wait, take I, a step I, back. I just, I just wanted to say something. I, I was listening obviously, and I I heard about your son doing t-ball, and someone once said, and it's true. There's more action in one minute of T-ball than there is in a double ender. Because, as you said, if, if people haven't seen it, the ball is hit. There are like 20 kids go for the ball. No one stays in their position. There's like exactly. 20 people running for the ball. So it's really fun to watch. But you're, that's, that's the image I got when you, when you mentioned oh, that. Oh, so you. much. We're over on the west side, probably near, kind, of, kind of near you. It's over by Riverside in the, in the 70s, uh, 77th, yeah. and it's right near the yeah. boat basin there uh, every Sunday morning. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun seeing these kids. Uh, uh, in uniforms and everything, but uh, having a blast. Um, what attracts you, uh, Charles, to the crime genre? Um, is it uh, good versus evil? Um, and what makes the crime genre something that never goes out of style? Um, because it's a mirror and reflection of, of 
of the human condition. Uh, that's mm-hmm. why. And I didn't realize that until I wrote the first one. And now every book that I write, I can deal with another human trait. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of crime, either the best of you comes out or the worst of you comes out. And so it's a, it's a very fertile ground for, um, for crime writers to do that. And, and I don't write the, 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 you know, the sort of the, the classic uh, detective novel where, the, where there's, there's a murder and the detective tries to solve it. Those are not the kind of books that I'm interested in writing because I find them too formulaic. So in all my books, that's why I, I, I like writing about character. I'm writing about people and the way people behave. Right. Mm-hmm. And we all have a bit of larceny in us, uh, or, or, you know, uh, which doesn't mean that we're all criminals, but they're, they're, you know, we, we lie. That's, that's larcenous. That's criminal. You know, if you, if you um, betray someone uh, on a personal level, that's, that's a crime. So I think that, uh, and this is something I had to learn while I was writing them, is that crime writers, the best ones, are really writing about the human condition. Got it. Um, arrogance and ego, uh, narcissism seem to uh, be uh, front and center in this book, and they are a reflection of our current times where it seems like the end does justify the means. Was that done uh, purposely and intentionally, or was that something that you had a, oh my goodness, this is exactly what's happening? Because, you know, you look at your characters and you look at the type of crimes, it's, it's very different. It's like, I'm going to say retro, uh, let's call it classic. You know, what you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's a kind of classic crime versus, uh, you know, something like Billions on Showtime, where it's all about the financial, the, the white-collar crime. This is more, you know, somebody stealing jewels or that type of thing. So um, talk to us about your choices there and also the notion of uh, the end justifying the means. And was that something that um, was planned, or was that something you said, oh, my goodness, this is exactly what's going on now in our country? No, this was very planned. What this book is really about is, to me, America's obsession with winning and being the best, and, um, the, and, the, and the sort of a, uh, uh, the idea that um, if you're not a winner, you're a loser. And this book is, is about that to me. I knew that when I first started writing that that's what it was going to be about. It was about our obsession that everything in America becomes a contest. And you look on TV, all those reality shows, they're not really about reality. They're about contests. They're about yep. winners, of, whether it's The Voice or it's Survivor or it's The Bachelor. Any of those, those shows are about winning. And there's an obsession to me about winning in this country that is ultimately very damaging. Uh, and we, we sort of, um, as I said, we, we kind of, if you're a loser, that's, that's an epithet. And we happen to have a, an administration now, as you've pointed out, with someone at the top of that administration who believes that, who believes everything is mm-hmm. a contest. Everyone's trying to rip him off, and he's going to come out on top. And uh, we have to be winners, you know, that's, you know, make, make America great again. And so this was, this, this book was, was written before, before Trump, before he even started mm-hmm. to run for office. But, but, but you're absolutely right. This book is really about that, that, the ends justifying the means and this obsession, the American obsession with winning and being the best. 
Now, uh, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned Charles, uh, and then, I'll, then we'll wrap, uh, wrap up, but um, you mentioned uh, you're working on a fifth Swan book. A Swan is a series, a Henry Swan mysteries. And then um, also I read where you have a new character, a new detective that you're going to introduce to us, I guess, in another book. So why don't you uh, tell us what's, what's next for Charles Salzburg? Yes. Well, I'm working on the Swan. I, have a, um, I did a book with two friends of mine called Triple Shot, which were three crime novellas. Right. And the publisher asked us to do another one. So we have that coming out in September, and it's called Strike Three, because there are three of us. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I do have a, I'm playing, I, I started in a book, uh, you know, about a year, about the same time I started The Next Swan, uh, with a new character, with a new detective character. And it's going to be a departure for me, I think, because this character is going to be much more, um, uh, much grittier and, and, and much more, there's going to be more violence uh, in, in his nature than he's sort of a throwback almost to the Mickey Swain type characters. And I don't know if I can pull it off, but I've got about uh, seven or 8,000 words, and that's probably what I'll go to um, after I finish this swan. Fantastic. Well, you, you must be thrilled just from a, you know, human guy, guy, to guy's guy standpoint. I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong. You you hit the you know you hit the, you struck gold kind of later later in life, and uh, it must feel fantastic because you've helped you know you've helped so many people along the way, and now your ship has come in. That must feel. How does that feel for you? Well, it feels great, and and, and I don't want people to think that that because you're absolutely right. My ship is not about making money. You know, being successful. My my ship is that that. I can write whatever I want and it gets published. Mm-hmm. That is a great feeling because for years sure. and years, and I was a nonfiction writer and things got published for years and years. I struggled and couldn't get anything published in terms of fiction. So that for me is making it, um, uh, is that I can, that I know that everything I write is going to get published. And for me, that's, that's the thrill. Okay. One last question um, for all of the aspiring writers out there. Um, and the market keeps changing for right now, what would be the number one nugget of advice that you would share with everybody? Well, I've got a couple. One is never give up. Um, you know, just don't let anyone tell you you can't do this or you shouldn't do this. If you're, I think this goes for anything, but not just mm-hmm. writing. And the other thing is to, um, to read a lot, read what's out there. Um, yeah. You will find, I mean, if any of your listeners are interested in crime writing, there are so many good writers writing that now, and there are so many different kinds of crime writing, and it's still still a book. And there are more and more of these smaller publishers coming up that that publish this stuff. But the main thing is, uh, and this is across the board, is, is don't give up. If you have a dream, just keep going for it. Got it. I agree with you completely, Charles. And you've been a uh, a mentor and an inspiration to myself and so many others out there. And um, I'm so thrilled with your success and I wish you uh, much more and I'm sure that's coming. So uh, listen, this is, I think your third or fourth time on guys, guys radio. You've been with me from the beginning. We're really taken off now uh, before I was uh, rooting around trying to find guests. And now I, I literally cannot keep up every day. I get another publicist sending me different people in different areas. So it's so, uh, it's so nice to be able to get the word out there, have my own platform and to help other people. And you've been an inspiration for that. 
and I uh, haven't walked away from writing by any means. Sometimes when the tip of the spear is there, you got to run behind it. So uh, thank you for your inspiration. Thank you for being on Guys Guys Radio and being with me from the beginning. And um, anything we can do to help you sell more books, we're here for you. So next book comes out. I hope you come right back, Charles. Well, so, and I really appreciate it. I mean, thanks for having me back. And uh, also, I do want to uh, catch your son playing T-ball one of these days. I'm going to walk up there. <laughs> I'm very close. Well, he's number 11, and his name is Sky. So uh, he's, on the, he's on the Bears. So we'll be out there every Sunday at 9 a.m. So come up and visit, okay. and we'd love to see you. So thanks Good. so much, Charles. And last question, Mets, for real or not? I think they are for real, but they're not as good as they're playing now. Um, but I think they are for real because they have a few guys like Cespedes who hasn't even hit his stride yet. So unless yep. they have injuries, they're for real. Um, you know, they're not, they're, I don't think they're the best team, but they're for real. Cool. All right. Well, good luck with the Mets also. Uh, I say that as a Yankee fan, so I'm, I'm not that sincere about that. But um, otherwise, uh, all, all the best to you. And um, uh, I look forward to seeing you. We'll catch up on lunch hopefully over the summer. Great. Thank you, Robert. Take care. All right. Be well, Charles. Okay, that's our special guest for this evening, everybody, Charles Salzberg, who's not only a great writer, he's a great human being, and he's helped so many people and so many writers uh, in New York, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to support his work and have him on the show because he's an interesting guest, a very good writer, and, um, and he just keeps going. He's prolific, so anyhow. All the best to Charles. So let's take a very, very short break, and then we're going to come back and do a quick Guys, Guys, Guide, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap. The Guys, Guys Radio. Okay, we're back, Guys, Guys Radio. Um, as I always like to do once a week, we do a little bit uh, called the Guys, Guys Guide. And this I based off my... Uh, my blog. I'm uh, syndicated with the Goodman Project and um, Thought Catalog, uh, Cupid's Pulse, and um, Your Tango and HuffPo. So uh, I write about anything having to do with life, love, and the pursuit of happiness all through the filter of uh, Guy's Guy. So it could be relationships, it could be dating, it could be marriage, it could be sex, it could be wellness, spirituality just issues in business and dealing with people and anger and failure and fear and supplements and making us the best smoothie or fish tacos or whatever. So I've written probably over 300 blog posts and um, I just want to tap into one of them for you. They're all on Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I.com. All of our podcasts for Guys Guys Radio are available for free, of course, uh, for your listening pleasure uh, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn Radio and Blog Talk Radio. And if uh, I could ask you one thing it would be if you like the show, please uh, rate, review, subscribe uh, on iTunes. That would be a big help because uh, then we get we get the word out there and more people listen. We get bigger and better guests and uh, we just keep rolling along. So anyhow. This week's Guys Guys Guide is the Guys Guys Guide to Staying Fit at Any Age. I'm a boomer, and I know so many guys um, and women in my age who, uh, who don't work out anymore, who have given up, and maybe they don't take care of their diet or their wellness, whatever. And I think one of the issues is, particularly for boomer men, is a lot of boomer men think or behave, they, they do the same thing that they did 30 years ago. They haven't changed anything. And, um, and yet they've kind of gotten out of shape. So what happens is you can get heavy and slow 
really fast because your metabolism slows down. And if you eat the same stuff you ate 30 years ago in the same portions, you're going to, you're going to gain weight. The food, uh, the food supply is different. You have to kind of pick around and know, uh, organic, uh, know what to cut out. Uh, everybody's got a whole bunch of different diet ideas. Um, and that's a whole different subject. I personally, I quit eating meat 10 years ago. Um, and I, it's a choice. I never looked back. I, I get protein from so many other sources. Um, I loved it. I loved meat. I, it was nothing like veal Parmesan or porterhouse steak, a great cheeseburger, but I, I've, I've worked my way around it and, um, I, I'm never going back as far as I'm concerned. I'm just, I'm not looking back. Um, but, uh, everybody has their different choices on that. But in terms of working out, um, you know, it's, it's a good idea to do your best to get in some semblance of good shape because it goes a long way and it affects your exercise is very good for your spirit, for your soul, for your body, for your mind, uh, for your temperament and for your overall wellness and health. So um, if you want to get started, a lot of people started at uh, New Year's and uh, have kind of dropped the ball since then. It's understandable. We've all done that. But to me, any time is a good time. Just the first thing you need to do is have some type of a goal. Say, all right, I want to lose 10 pounds or, and keep it off, or I want to be able to do X amount of a, of a circuit type of exercise thing. It doesn't matter. If you have a goal, it'll kind of keep you on, for me at least, uh, keeps me on track. And um, I set a, a weight loss thing. So I put together a physical fitness program as well as a diet program. And I mentioned this on the show. I started what's called my process of elimination diet. So every week this year, I've given up something else that's not good for me. Things like alcohol, cookies, candy, cake, pie, croissants, muffins, cream cheese, soda, ice cream, potato chips, white rice, brown rice, chocolate bars, cream, scones, and donuts. 17 weeks so far. So every Sunday, I come up with something else and drop it. And it's interesting because you know, all I have to focus on is on that one thing during the week that something new that I dropped. And then as soon as I come up with something else, I have to focus on, can I not eat that for the week? Now I'm still eating pizza and, uh, <clears throat> I'm still eating bagels and stuff like that, but not as much. And my, my desire for those type of foods has diminished as I go along, but you know, the fitness part of it, uh, I've had a goal in terms of what my wor- workouts, what I want to do. Uh, another thing to do is to start slowly. So if you're going to get on a program and you're a boomer, at least you can't just jump in. You know what? No matter what age, you can't just jump in. You have to take kind of take it slow and be make it a lifestyle, not kind of a diet type short term mentality. You have to make it an, a long term. So I like to make annual programs and then stick with it. And part of that also is being consistent. So you can miss a day now and then if you don't feel right, but don't fall off the wagon you know, make sure you stay with your program. And if you, if you make it an annual or a yearly program or a six month program, whatever, you know, this gives you a chance. You can, you can, you can screw up, but you can get back on the horse. Um, got to have the right mindset for that. Also, when you're doing your workouts, uh, you want to get enough rest because your body as, uh, as you age is going to respond to rest. And so many people are sleep deprived, uh, in this country, uh, and, and guys and people who are working so hard and it's understandable, but you got to find time for your workout. Uh, even if it's just walking or using the stairs or, you know, taking a run once a week or working out on the elliptical or doing, uh, I do this thing, uh, it's an additive called the, uh, Dan Millman came up with it. The guy who wrote the peaceful warrior, 
he's got the peaceful warrior workout. It's four minutes and it's 15 different short exercises that you do. And by the end of doing that, your whole body is kind of opened up and your spine and your hips and your pelvis and your, your everything is loosened up and your neck. And uh, I, I do that and, uh, and just keep adding. Also, you, as I mentioned, you want to have few, the right food for fuel. And um, remember this, the best advice I've ever gotten was abs are made in the kitchen, not the gym. So no matter how hard you work out, if you're not eating right, you're not going to, if you want the visual, you want the visual uh, results, you're going to have to taper your diet as well as taper while you're tapering your body. So be careful of what you eat. That means avoid processed food, fried foods, sugar, 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 um, simple carbs that turn into sugar, careful with the booze, of course, and things like ice cream and pizza, you know, got to really dial that down because uh, that's where the uh, weight comes on pretty easily. Um, Also, shake up your routine now and then. So if you just do the same thing every day, there's nothing wrong with that, but your body will respond if you uh, try some different things and give it a little variety, uh, and then you'll, you'll get to work different muscle groups. Um, and then the mental game is important too. So, uh, don't give up, never give up. And, um, again, if you fall off a little bit, just get back on and stick with it and, and you'll get there and get, get where you're going. So a most important thing is have the intention, put into the work, make the time for some type of workout, do something every day and get your butt outside too. So anyhow, that's my guy's guide guide, my guy's guy's guide of the week. And uh, we're going to be back. We've got another Sunday edition this week. We've been doing two shows per week. Um, and we're going to do that leading up to the summer. And then we're just going to do one for the summer. And then we'll get back on the horse in the fall. But right now we've got uh, uh, Rachel Russo is going to be our special guest on Sunday. She's a dating expert in the New York area. And um, can't wait to talk to her. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So tune in then, and until then, remember what I always like to say? What do you like to say, guys, guy? Well, guys, guys, finish first.